as you stand in body or spirit, we come before God's word, quite likely as Jesus and the disciples would have reciting what they called the Shema, which was to listen. It's a both a confession and a prayer. And of course, Jesus made it the basis of the great commandment. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, The scripture this morning for Epiphany is the visit of the wise men. This is chapter 2 in Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them from where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been born, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This year, I've seen two plays, which is about two more plays than I have seen in the last several years. But what the plays had in common is they were both, we might say, based on other uh, works. They were, in a sense, sequels. So, as I may mention to some of you, I was in Canada and saw a sequel to Anne of Green Gables called Gilbert and Anne. And then the other night, we saw, in a sense, a sequel to Pride and Prejudice about Christmas at, uh, at Pemberley. Now, each of those plays could have stood on their own and you could have gotten something out of it. But how much richer and fuller was the experience when I was able to have my wife explain to me the background of both of those plays? Now, the same is true when we come to Matthew's birth story. It is a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. But it becomes much richer for us when we realize that in a sense it's a sequel. If we understand the backstory, we'll get so much more out of it. It is, in a sense, a sequel or backstory to another birth story, the birth story of Moses. Most scholars will tell you that when you look at the Gospel of Matthew uh, and study it carefully, you realize that there are a lot of things that hint that the Gospel of Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience or perhaps a a group of Jews who had recently become Christians. And so there's a sense where they assume that you know that backstory. And many will argue that what the author is doing through the Holy Spirit is setting Jesus up as a new Moses. And setting what Jesus has done or what God has done through Jesus up as a new and greater exodus. 
Well, I thought for an exercise this morning, we would just take a look at those two birth stories. Let's see the similarities and see what we might learn from the similarities between the two stories. So the first similarity is just the situation. When Moses is born, the people are in slavery. They've been enslaved for more than 400 years uh, to the Egyptians. When Jesus is born, the people are living in occupied territory by the Romans. But you get the sense as you read the entire New Testament that the big problem is not the Romans. The big problem is a slavery that has existed almost from the beginning of time. A slavery to the powers of sin or evil or death that has occupied and oppressed the people. And so the situation in both is slavery, which the lesson I draw is our God is a God of freedom whose great desire is that people find, the, find freedom from what oppresses them in life. Uh, the pastors on the staff know that one of my favorite verses outside of the Bible uh, comes from a great rabbi in the 21st century who often says this, the free God desires the free worship of free people. God is about freedom and about helping people be free from whatever uh, keeps them from choosing God and choosing the life that God has for them freely. So that's the situation. Now, as we continue the situation of slavery, how are they to be delivered? Well, the means of deliverance is the same in both stories. It's a baby. Now, the baby Moses is born to Jochebed and Avram. Now, this is in the Jewish tradition and not in Exodus, but apparently when uh, Pharaoh said, I'm going to kill all the babies, the male babies of the Jews, uh, there are some faithful Jews who then decided to divorce one another so they would not bring a baby into this world. And so according to tradition, it is possible that Moses' parents uh, divorced, thinking that was the act of faithfulness. And then God uh, prevailed upon them that no, the faithful act was to stay together in the face of Pharaoh's um, edict and oppression. And so when Moses is born, it's kind of questionable. His parents may have you know, married, divorced, and remarried. Well, even more questionable is the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph. Because according to the text, Mary and Joseph are engaged. They're not even married yet. And Mary becomes pregnant with this child. Well, what are we to learn from these interesting and somewhat questionable births? I think we learned that you can never judge uh, things by their cover. That uh, you can't immediately write someone or a situation off and say, God is not in that. You need to take the time and prayer and attention to know people and to look at situations more carefully to see that God may be working in ways that you and I write off because it doesn't match our standards that we held ahead of time. And so the means of deliverance is these births in sort of questionable family situations. Now, uh, both of the births, another similarity, are, are accompanied by signs. Again, this is not an exodus, but in, in Jewish tradition, what happened is the astrologers of Pharaoh's magicians, and you may remember the astrologers in the ancient world were sort of like the scientists of the day, believe it or not, um, and, uh, and, and in some way, maybe even the physicians of the day. And they come to Pharaoh and they said, we've seen a sign that God the, of the Hebrews is going to raise up a savior for the Hebrews from among the people. But we also know that this, this savior will meet his end by water. And so Pharaoh comes up with this plan based on this sign to throw the babies into the Nile. Now, if you wonder about the accuracy of their reading, Jew, uh, Jewish scholars will tell you, if you think about Moses, remember when Moses sort of like loses his uh, leadership mantle and he can't go into the promised land? 
because he comes to a rock and God says, speak to the rock uh, to get water and he strikes it instead. You might say he met his end through water. So there's this unusual sign. And now in the New Testament with the birth of of Jesus the Savior, there is of course also an unusual sign, this star that attracts these astrologers. The Magi are not um, uh, people uh, who would have worshipped the God of the Hebrews, but they see the sign. Well, what are we to make of this? Well, I think we're to make maybe two things. Number one is that God intended, even though God was working through a particular people, salvation to be for all people. God made it even clear that the coming of Moses was to affect everyone. And of course, the coming of Christ is for the whole world. But to me, even more than that, how the leaders in power reacted to these signs, they reacted with fear and anxiety and oppression. And so it is that Pharaoh's response to this sign is to start killing babies and throwing them into the Nile River. And Herod's response to the sign is to go to Bethlehem and find children 18 months old and younger, having ascertained the rising of the star and killing the children. Reminds me, that even though I'm not Herod or Pharaoh, I'm never my best self when I act and respond to other people in fear and anxiety. And then, of course, there are bad guys in both stories. Pharaoh, clearly the bad guy, uh, rules the mightiest civilization seen up to that time. Think about this. When Moses is born, the mighty pyramids have already been there for almost 2,000 years. For 1,500 to 2,000 years. I mean, that, that, they've been big and bad for a long time, and Pharaoh rules them. And then, of course, Herod, as we've talked about before, Herod rules the Middle East uh, effectively, which, as you know, is no small feat. And he also happens to be the richest man in the world at the time of Jesus' birth. Both Pharaoh and Herod are effective and powerful, but that doesn't make them good, nor does it make them right. We have to be careful that we uh, don't evaluate people just based on their results. Too often we have an attitude that the ends will justify the means. That's never a biblical approach. God cares not only about what we do, but how we go about and do it. But the lesson for me from both Pharaoh and Herod is simply this, that I've heard it said that oftentimes our talent and our skills will take us place where our character cannot support us. You may end up with responsibilities and opportunities that are much greater than your ethical ability to handle them. When we don't work on our character as hard as we might work on our career and our resume, we may find that we're building a 20-story structure on a foundation that can only hold 10, and the collapse is both predictable and inevitable. So there are bad guys. Well, if there's bad guys, there's got to be resistance to the bad guys. Who are the resistance forces in the birth of Moses? There, there are the midwives. Pharaoh decides he's going to cut this thing off of the pass and says, look, when these women give uh, birth, they're not going to be in the strongest condition afterwards, so I want you to take the male babies and, and kill them. And of course, the midwives don't do that at all. Shipra and Pua, and they say to Pharaoh, look, these women are stronger than you think. Or no, we, we can't do it. And, and they resist Pharaoh's order. Well, who's the resistance in Matthew 2? I would argue it's the wise men. Now, it's true that unwittingly the wise men gave away the location of the, of the birth of the child to Herod. But on the other hand, they didn't go back to him afterwards to report. And secondly, it is likely that the gifts of treasure they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and the other gifts 
were what sustained the Holy Family as they fled uh, Israel and, and Judea, rather, and went on to Egypt and allowed them to survive. When you have a resistance force, one of the things that teaches me is no matter how overwhelming the odds may seem against you in any situation, you still have a choice. You can never say, well, I had no option at all. It was just, I just had to step in line. I had to do what I was told. I had to go along to get along. Whatever we tell ourselves when we participate in something that we know deep down is not what we are called to do. And we find that among the wise men and these midwives at the risk, great personal risk, they had a choice and they acted against the oppressive powers of the day. Well, not only do you have resistance, you have heroes and heroines. You have good guys in these stories. Who are the good guys in the story of the birth of Moses? I would argue that perhaps the heroine of the story of the birth of Moses is Pharaoh's daughter, because Pharaoh's daughter is the one that has to bring Moses and his mother to nurse him inside the Pharaoh's palace and raise him as her own and protect him guide him, educate him, and prepare him for a mission she doesn't know about, which is later in life to come back and to confront the, um, the Egyptian power and the Pharaoh that will come at that time. And of course, we know the, the hero, in a sense, and heroine in the story of, of uh, Jesus' birth are Mary and Joseph, who make this journey, have this child, and risk their lives, and escape with the child, and go to Egypt, and then come back to Nazareth and raise him. So what I learned from both Pharaoh's uh, daughter and Mary and Joseph, I I learned this, that real heroic action is not something you do in a moment. Now, I know there are people who do amazing things at a moment's uh, ability. You know, adrenaline gets a hold of them, or they they are moved by um, bravery or patriotism or, or whatever it is, and I know that that happens. And I know sometimes... You know, we remember back to 9-11, they're on the airplane, and it's, let's roll, and they take it over. There are those moments. But usually in the faith life, I would tell you that real heroism involves doing the right thing over and over for a long time, even if it's not easy. The late Eugene Peterson called it this, a long obedience in the same direction. He said too much of our faith life as Christians has become tourism. We, we, just, we, we, we just basically light briefly upon our faith or we go to whatever seems to be burning and brightest and most attractive at the moment rather than the hard daily work of living with Christ and taking the child home with us and living with him every day in our life. It is a long obedience and that's the real heroism in our day I think is to be able to do the right thing over and over again even when nobody notices, our people actually stand in opposition. And then finally, when you look at comparing the two birth stories, it's fair to ask, well, what was the outcome? What happened? Well, as you know, Moses will grow up, and uh, he will, 80 years later, come back and lead the people into, uh, to the verge of the promised land. And they will find a place of their own. But what happens with Jesus as he grows? and it teaches, and performs miracles, and, and offers his life, what you find is not just a particular land is established, but it, the means by which an entire world can be transformed is established. 
and things on earth and in heaven are different because he has lived and he has died and he's risen. In other words, I think Matthew would argue that something even greater and bigger than Moses has occurred. And what I learned from that, what I learned is that God's always up to things that are bigger than I can imagine. And that the arc of God's movement in the Bible is, uh, is toward things uh, that are greater than uh, my mind and even heart can seemingly hold or grasp. God will move bigger and in better ways than we even will guess. Even what we can see is not the extent of what God will do. And God will take both those who cooperate and those who oppose and weave them in to this mighty plan of freedom. Pharaoh's a part of the plan. Herod's a part of a plan just as much as Mary and Joseph and Pharaoh's daughter. Christian author Philip Yancey put it this way. He said, when I was younger, I was pretty good at chess. And I read classic works on chess. And, and he said, I quit playing for a while. But when I moved to a new town, he said, I started playing again, got in a club, met people. He said, then I ran up against a real chess master. He said, so when we played, he said, I would use the classic strategies. And he said, and he would always thwart me with the classic defenses. He said, so I realized that wasn't working. So I went to unorthodox strategies. And he said, and what this master would do is take my unorthodox strategies and weave them into his plan. And he would still defeat me every time. And then Yancey paused and said, biblically, in many ways, is God not the great chess master? who can take those of us willing to cooperate and even those who oppose and work a plan that is bigger and better than we even imagine.